Welcome to the Nature Sight Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. This is the second Nature Sight Podcast, and the subject is field botany. A few weeks ago, some friends of mine were all going to the Missouri Botanical Garden Herbarium to do various types of work, and I thought, what better opportunity could one have than to entice them to sit down and speak to us for an hour or so? And they were happy to oblige. Field botany is botany out in the middle of a field. No, field botany is um, botany in action. Applied botany, I think, is is ultimately what's applied by by the field portion of field botany. Field botany is more or less applied botany, applied in the field, whether collecting data or collecting specimens. It's it's close and interactive. It's dealing with wild plants mostly not not cultivated plants um it's it's an it's an interactive profession and it is a profession there are not very many field botanists field botany is not well funded funding tends to go towards more lab-based activities that have grants that are usually driven by technology and and you hear about issues like that in the podcast itself so i won't i won't go into it now but field botany and field botanists are often sort of the, the more rugged and tolerant uh, botanists that you'll run into. I consider myself a field botanist primarily. I, I, I often joke that I'm the oldest living field botanist. Most people do field botany for a summer or two as an intern sort of position, and I'm going on 22 years, and I'm still in the field as much as I was the first season, collecting collecting data and collecting plants. And I'm lucky in that regard because I love it. I love every every second of it. There's there's so much to be learned by being in contact, learning about systems and organisms in situ and as many places as you possibly can. Give gives you a deeper insight, I think, into how systems work. And so this will this will probably be one of many podcasts that we do that involve field botany because a lot of nature sites focus is on applied science applied ecology and a lot of that just by default is is done through a botanical lens and thus a field botanical lens but field botanists are are out there in the heat they're out there in the the various biting and parasitic insects and arachnids that uh, one exposes oneself to um, many of us have had several tick-borne diseases. We suffer from numerous scrapes and bruises and the hazards of the field. You know, a lot of field botanists I know have had heat exhaustion once or twice. Um, it's, it's hard work. And, and I think the, the brutality that a field botanist gleefully opens oneself to is part of part of the appeal it's part of the the rugged enjoyment of it because that's what nature and that's what the real world is that's putting yourself in contact with uh with what you're what you're studying there's a uh poet charles burkowski one of one of my favorite lines of his is find what you love and let it kill you you often feel like that when it's 100 degrees and you're in 
a prairie and ticks are crawling all over you and chiggers are crawling up your arm as you finger through grasses and identify them and the sun is glaring off a white data sheet and and you're you're often tran- transported you're you're you become you know people go into people go into saunas to sweat out the toxins and to open their minds and clear their minds that's pretty much every day for a field body. So the, I even think, I think there is a physiological benefit, a health benefit that even comes along with it. And a mental benefit of being focused on something really hard, like identifying plants in a quadrat, focusing on that, even though your brain is melting. Um, you know, some of the, some of the worst days I've had in the field in terms of brain melting heat for weeks afterwards, I feel more alive than ever. Anyway. It's hard, often thankless work that one engages in because one enjoys that. One can't not do it, um, but it's not often funded well, not nearly as well as it should be. But even though there are those hazards and it is often hard on the mind and body, but indirectly good for it, um, you get to see so many beautiful things and so many beautiful places and so many beautiful interactions. So when I had the opportunity to meet with these four field botanists and have a conversation, I thought between the four of us, we could really get into some really interesting dialogue and interesting discussions. If you've ever been around field botanists, things get a bit erudite. Um, if you, if you're not steeped in the flora, the conversation can can drift away from you. But we stayed pretty well on task with broad concepts in this, so I, I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of that. There are some scientific names. We tried to toss in the, the common names as well um, for ease of listening, if nothing else. But the four people that I converse with, they're all associated with either at or recently from Austin P. State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. And they've all worked closely with Dwayne Estes, who is one of the foremost botanists and ecologists and advocates now for for biodiversity in, in the eastern, southeastern United States. Dwayne is the executive director of the Southeast Grasslands Initiative, which is a, a growing and wonderful organization that's doing wonderful things Go to their website, check them out. But Dwayne's also the, a, a professor at Austin P. State University. But in the podcast, you'll hear a reference to Austin P. That's Austin P. State University, just for clarity. I should also note that we're having this conversation at the Missouri Botanical Garden Herbarium. In fact, we're we are in the herbarium itself, surrounded by surrounded by dried plant specimens. And um, though we're there, we're we're there as researchers and this. This is in no way affiliated with the Missouri Botanical Garden. Um, a few other things of note. Um, some people may not know what an herbarium is. And it's pretty simple. An herbarium is a, it's it's analogous to a library. What a, what a library is to books, an herbarium is to plant specimens. And they're, they're you know, plant coll- people that collect plants collect them. They put them in a plant press that flattens them into two dimensions more or less. Uh, label is made. They're mounted on regulation size paper. And then they're 
given to, donated to, moved around to various herbaria. There are plant collectors that collect plants. They send their specimens to an herbarium. The herbarium takes a look at them. If they don't need those specimens or they don't need all of them or there's duplicates, then they take them and they'll trade them or send them off to other herbaria. And so you get this this collection of plants. Smaller herbaria are usually regional. Um, I live in Springfield, Missouri. We have an herbarium at Missouri State University that's mostly regional flora. <clears throat> the the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis, of course, is a is a global institution, and the 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 plant collection there is colossal and cosmopolitan. It's it's an amazing place in that regard. But it also has a huge, it's the largest collection of Missouri plants. A couple other housekeeping items to to address with this this particular podcast. Um, we only had one mic. We had to pass it around between us, which turned out to work well. It worked fine. But, you know, there's, you might hear mumbling or people asking questions or, or talking in the background. They're barely audible. Um, we did a really good job of, of moving the microphone, but it's kind of funny because, you know, there'll be an occasional joke or something told and the person with the mic will be laughing, but you can't really hear the other people laughing. So, but the four field botanists to which I spoke at the Missouri Botanical Garden were Claire Chaffray, Mason Brock, Zach Eric and Thomas Murphy. And again, they're all more or less associated with Austin P State University. And they each introduced themselves in the conversation. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to to make some other points that are more directly related to the mission of Nature Site in general. Just something that's food for thought as as we listen to this conversation. Ascesis, which I introduced in the first podcast, the process of ascesis, is a process of finding an ecologically relevant place in the world, of finding stable consciousness in the case of modern humans. Our, our current consciousness is, is destroying the functional dynamism and natural expressions of reality by rampant resource exploitation and overt disregard of natural processes. We're we're dismantling natural order for human profit at the expense of human potential and the beauty of existence, the, the very liberty that is inherent to all life. The more nature we destroy and degrade, the more degraded the human condition, the human experience, and the potential for human dignity become. This, this is a process that started long ago and that continues today. But when we pause and we become mindful of this dynamic, when we become conscious of this compulsion and grant the rights of life, liberty, and dignity to all living things, we start to see the system reassemble and begin to see ourselves unshackled by greed and servitude. A good example of this is go to a farmer's market and see the beautiful cultural expressions of small-scale living and reduced footprint. You know, look at the stranger's smiles as you pass by as they rejoice in the creations of their own community. Just like a natural system that naturally stabilizes and rebuilds in complexity, we only need to end the disturbances we inflict and the natural and cultural dynamics like these will follow effortlessly. We, we restore systems by essentially letting them get back to their natural processes. Our culture is no different. and Our, our, our consciousness is no different. 
resource exploitation that drives much of our culture is disturbance. It disturbs systems. Those systems are natural systems out in the world. They're also human systems. Most people that would be listening to a Nature Site podcast probably understand that. Those of us that understand what I'm talking about are, are close to this point in, in human history where this shift in consciousness is taking place. But most people are not there. Most humans aren't even close. And the friction between those of us that are driven to stabilize versus those that are driven to exploit is expressed in our current political rifts that are boiling around us as we speak. That's not new. It's important to remember that the Age of Enlightenment that gave birth to science, rationalism, liberal democracy, it was one of the most recent lunges forward in human progress and progressive culture. And it established the framework upon which slavery was outlawed. Women were given equal representation. On the flip side, the Enlightenment, science, and rationalism also took us through the Industrial Revolution and some of the worst human atrocities on landscape scales. And, and ultimately, we, we've never fully embraced science, rationalism, and liberal democracy as a culture. We've teased with it, but going all in on truth, reason, justice, and the natural rights of all living things is the only way forward now. We're, we're rapidly losing our chance to fix ourselves. We're, we're at a point where we are just mitigating the extent of the damage. Not going all in on the necessary changes of, in consciousness now will ultimately finalize the chain of events that brings humanity to its knees. We've, we either become conscious and respectful of the natural limits of human survival in a world worth living in, or become ignorant miscreants crawling in a vile, polluted earth, digging through the scrap heaps generated from our former ignorance and filthy inaction. Authoritarianism, social oppression, extreme environmental degradation, those things are going to be necessary to evoke the anger and cruelty needed to live in a dark, polluted world of the future. As a father, that deeply concerns me. As a feeling, thinking, rational human that sees the potential in all of us, it fills me with, with deep sorrow as well. So what does this have to do with field botany? <laughs> a lot, actually. You're, you're, you're not going to hear the people in this interview speak in these terms. You, you probably don't hear yourself speak in these terms very much. But if you admire nature, listen between the words. Listen to the intentions. Listen to what they and you perceive as important in this conversation. And you'll see that it's very much what they and probably you mean when you insist that nature is important. In order to make the necessary shift in consciousness, we need to embrace this unspoken, nearly unconscious intentionality. We need to become fully conscious of it and communicate it as real, because it is real. And it is really what we're talking about. Like in this podcast, we're talking about field botany, but underlying that is the need to understand organisms and to understand the world and to appreciate those things. We don't speak directly about that, but it's the undertone. But we live in a world that doesn't appreciate those things. And that, that's ultimately the fundamental problem with, with the natural sciences not, not entering the mainstream. The mainstream needs to become conscious. We, as, as people who appreciate nature, need to become conscious of how 
dire and real and necessary that appreciation is instead of considering it a luxury or a personal opinion or a way of a way of life in which one can choose to take a path in life that one can choose to take or not it isn't we we cannot continue ignoring how important nature and natural processes are we're talking about understanding and celebrating beauty diversity and knowledge we're talking about reality and how we interact with it if if we can grasp that consciously and communicate it effectively the rest will fall in place i think i think getting over that hurdle getting over that cultural barrier that cultural acceptance and just becoming more conscious and communicating it more effectively will will go a long way so with that in mind i give you the conversation on field botany but ask you to remember keep in mind stay conscious of what it's really about enjoy all right today we are at the missouri botanical garden with some people that are here studying some of the plants that the the botanical garden herbarium has as reference material um but we'll we'll go go around and and let everybody introduce themselves and what they what they do and maybe why they're here at the garden all right hey I'm Mason Brock, and I am from, well, we're all from Austin P. Well, we're, at least we were all from Austin P. originally, but now we're, we've all gone our separate ways, except for me and Thomas, which not to be confused with Justin Thomas, that's going to be, that's going to be a little confusing. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> come up with a new name for you. Um, and uh, the reason I'm here is to finish up what I began last time and didn't finish, which was Thaspium. But that took like two seconds. And uh, now... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, you did the Thaspium treatment for the Florida North America project. Is that correct? Yeah, I did the Thaspium treatment for the uh, Florida North America project when the previous author, who will remain unnamed, uh, decided to um, uh, no longer do it after... Uh, a few years uh so uh i got a like a cold email like last summer and it was like can you do thaspium in two months also welcome to the florida america project (laughs) (laughs) i was like yeah um so there's only like four species in it so it's not like even the big deal um so uh uh, yeah, I was talking to a, a John Prusky, and he was like, oh, what are you working on? And I was like, oh, Thaspium. He's like, oh, I'm working on Asteraceae of Mesoamerica. All of it. And I'm like, oh, that's... <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh, well, okay. Well, uh, good, good luck on that. Um, he's clearly brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just like clear, clearly brilliant. Um, okay, so that's my my real reason here is Menuardia. Um, which is a uh, sandwort, and um, I think I have a new species, and that's probably all I should say about that. Before we pass on, what do you what do you mean by it's a new species? Because maybe end up being the theme here is is new species in general. But let's add to as we go around what you think constitutes a new species, and you can just say ditto if it's what the last person said. That's, uh, sure, that's a great uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm just throwing these terms around like uh like like we've all we're all, we're all on the same page here. But yeah, so new species as in um some sort of taxonomic entity that 
appears undescribed uh, in the new species of science. Um, it looks weird, grows weird in a weird place. Um, just a weird, weird, weird. Uh, so probably needs a name. Um, probably may already, already have a name. Need to investigate that a little closer. So uh, by new species, I mean um, a new uh, entity to the scientific community. I don't really know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. Yeah. A name for something that was never given a name before. Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't like I discovered this. Like, There's like 30 or 40 collections of it. You don't have a laboratory somewhere where you generate new species released to the world. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing I do. Is I have I, I have a radiation chamber that, that I, I blast just as plants until so they mutate, and then they get they get a new name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's uh, all kind. Of, that's 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 really where most new species of science come from. Little little known fact. Okay, let's go on. Okay, uh, my name's Zach Eirich, and uh, I'm a botanist with the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, which is based out of Austin Peay State University. And I'm based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, representing SGI, working on a lot of different projects uh, throughout the Southern Appalachians. Uh, but I'm here working on uh, taxonomy projects and also looking at uh, taxonomic groups that are of high interest to me. And so with Thomas Murphy, we're working on uh, describing some new Clemens species, which Mason has kind of alluded to what a new species is, and what's great about this place here at this garden is it's a treasure trove of information, basically. And we can't go to most herbaria and look at specimens from the 1800s and 1900s. You know, we can only really do that here in the other big herbaria throughout America and the world. And so we're finding things all the time. Uh, that really we're not getting access to that are pretty good species and we're just finding more and more you know new taxonomic problems uh, to work on mainly when, when we come to places like this. You mentioned Clematis as a, as a genus you're looking at which are the... Uh, so they're the weather flowers and they're a very uh, problematic group there's been a lot of controversial taxonomies and so in the southeast um, there's a subgenus Fiornum which are primarily vining, um, but they're sometimes can be herbaceous type growth. And um, a lot of people don't want to call them species because a lot of the taxonomy has been done from herbarium specimens. Uh, but looking at living collections, you can clearly see that there's a lot of uh, difference between these taxa and that they should probably be recognized as a species. And by species, do you want to add to anything that Mason said is, is what would constitute a new species? Um, well, so I guess that varies by uh, a lot of definitions, but uh, for us, a lot of uh, morphological difference, um, allopatric distributions, um, things that are these, a lot of these are endemic to narrow areas, and then trying to use a total evidence approach if you can uh, with genetic data corroborating the morphological data is the way we like to go. And uh, there's a collaborator in Colorado who's doing some genetic work. And so it's a big process, and we're providing a lot of resolution to the genus. Yeah, I want to add to um, to that is is that a lot of these new species, especially the, the sort of thing we're talking about now with, with these four fine folks, is... Uh, or what you might call cryptic species. I mean, all the low-hanging fruit has been described. You know, Cornus Florida, the flowering dogwood. There's not a whole lot of controversy there, but who knows? There could be, you know, in 
somebody could get to know Cornus, Florida really well and realize, hey, you know, this Cornus, Florida on the top of this mountain in Tennessee is different than the others. And that's 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 a hypothesis. Um, and, and I always like to remind people that a, that a species name, when we give a species a name, that's a hypothesis in science. It's like, okay, we're hypothesizing that this is a thing. And then the scientific community kind of ad- adopts it or ignores it. There's a lot of a lot of new names that have been published over the years that were either never picked up or that were picked up and then dropped. Um, so it's always a hypothesis. And so the the low hanging fruit has been picked. There's there's a lot of things, especially in North America, we 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 tend to think of botanical exploration as moving on to the tropics and of course there's more low hanging fruit there. But here even in North America where there's been a lot of botanists for a long period of time, there are still a lot of things we're finding that we missed. And the beauty of these jewels are that they're they uh, they're often the most rare things, um, so it's 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 a, it's actually more important that we that we really get these documented and, and understand them in a taxonomic and an ecological context. Yeah, I really like that uh, those points that you're making, and I think now is a better time than ever to get young botanists doing lots of field work and lots of exploring because there's a huge gap. You know, there's a pretty big gap and there's not a lot of uh, field botanists going into universities. And so what we're doing, I think, is very important. Yeah, it's funny that Zach mentions uh, age and, and getting people involved in this. I think the, the median age of, of, you know, I'll exclude myself because I'll, I'll, I'll tip it too far the other way. But it's probably 30-ish for the, for the group. And that's, these are, these are young folks that have all had extensive field experience. They're all, I mean, these are, these are kind of the cream of the crop in terms of field-based people that, that have, that have noticed things in nature because they've been outside observing nature and have, have noticed that there's things that have been overlooked and that have, have, have gone so far as to drive their careers towards justifying the existence of a lot of these things that are otherwise swept under the rug or just, or ignored or easily ignored for more shiny and flashier things in the biological world. Um, so these guys are, are treasures in and of themselves and we need more of that. There's a huge gap. You go to like a native plant society meeting or a, even an Autobahn society meeting and the median age is going to be 55, 60. There's a lot of retirees and it's a, it's great that they're, they're doing it, but we definitely need to, we need to find ways to infuse younger people to be interested in natural history, even though I don't like that term. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've uh, kind of a, a long running joke, which isn't, isn't very funny anymore, is that I've been the, uh, the youngest botanist in Tennessee for the past 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're still the, yeah, I'm, I'm in my, I'm at 47. When I go to meetings, still I'm called the young guy. Like I, I've got gray in my beard now. It's, Okay, so I was going to say one thing. So I didn't get to start learning botany until I was a an upper level an upper level class as an undergraduate. You shouldn't you should be exposed to more botany and ecology at a much younger level in your education. Yeah. So middle school, high school, elementary school. Yeah. It shouldn't be a senior level class in university only. You should have exposure so you can get kids and young people interested in that. So when they go to school. They know they're going to school to be a botanist or ecologist, you know, focusing on, you know, some kind of plant science. Yeah, I was 24 before I was exposed to, like, a real plant taxonomy yeah, class really right. as a senior. So 
I don't think that should be the case. So. We've had, you know, we, I do workshops and teach classes at, at, at a university, and, and the the field botany class that we that I instruct, um, juniors and seniors are, are, the, are in the class, and I've had seniors come up to me and say, "I wish I would have knew known this this was a thing before I chose X major, because uh, I really am passionate about this." And they're usually really smart, and they're really excited, and they're really capable. But they don't even know it exists. I was I was a I was a junior in college and a anthropology major, and in my spare time I was out collecting plants and taking pictures of plants, completely oblivious to, you know, I didn't know where wildflower guides and floras came from. I just, just they were just there, right? But somebody has to write those things, and then I, you know, I, I stumbled into it as a as a profession, luckily. I think even as a profession, even students who are interested in botany at the college level may not necessarily know about field botany. Like, for example, I myself, I knew I wanted to be a botanist, and I went to school with a strong botany program as a re result, but I had no idea that field botanists were a thing. I wanted to be a plant pathologist because that was really the only plant field I had been exposed to despite taking plant systematics. So it was only after I graduated and saw some job postings when I realized that, oh, people get paid to wander around and, like, identify stuff outside. And I think, yeah, well, theoretically. So, I mean, how do you get a bunch of people to go to school for careers that they don't even know exist? And that's, that's a really tough part of it, too. Yeah. Not just the programs themselves and their rarity. I'm gonna interrupt Claire, and then we'll let her introduce herself. But <laughs> the uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a major disjunct between reaching people that might be interested in the field of, of any field science, and the the people that are that are actually doing it. We're not seeing not seeing young people go into fields that are observational, that are interactive. You know, a lot of a lot of science, especially biological science and ecological sciences, are almost exclusively lab-based. And when, when when people ask me, say, hey, I'm really into field botany and really into taxonomy or ecology, where can I go to where can I go to get a master's degree or get an advanced degree or even an undergrad degree? What university can I go to? And I've got I've I've got nothing to give them. There I mean there are programs out there, but there's it's not an easy thing to find. Uh, Austin P has been a, a good place with, with Dwayne Estes as an advisor. Um, and there aren't many options, which is a sad testament to the to the state of affairs. Because um, we have to know the world we live in or we can't protect it. Anyway, we'll give it back to Claire. So my name is Claire Chaffray. I just got my master's from Austin P State University and now I'm in that awkward period of trying to find a job. So mostly I sit on my couch and try to further analyze my data that I collected for my thesis and try to get that published. Um, but in the meantime, I'm working on some side projects, which is why I'm here at MOBOT. I'm currently trying to describe a species of beak sedge in the genus Ringospora. It's probably one of the flashier genera of the sedges. It's definitely, <laughs> it's all relative. Um, I think... I think more people find Ringospora to be more approachable than Carex, which isn't really saying a lot. <laughs> um, 
But originally in our herbarium at Austin P, I was trying to annotate some Rhinchospora, and in doing so, I had to learn them. And to learn them, I just started pulling the fruits and learning them that way. And most people don't learn them that way, which helped me bypass a very confusing character, which ultimately helped me identify this new thing as being new. Um, and it turns out it's very rare. I've only found two specimens of it here at Mobot, one of which was already a population I knew about. And it just seems to prefer a really specialized environment. And that's one of the things that has convinced me and several others that it is a new entity in addition to its uh, dis very distinct morphology. What did you mean when you said that most people don't do that, but you do that? Like, what what is the that you're talking about? Um, most people learn species by keying them out and using the characters that are already known. Um, and I use that to an extent, but some of the couplets and the keys that I was using I just didn't understand. Like, one of the characters is the number of fruits in a cluster, but what is a cluster? It's a highly complicated inflorescence type, and I didn't know what I was looking at, so I tried to look a little bit closer, closer than the keys ever really used, and just kind of make up my own key. A lot of finding cryptic species or learning species or finding out that there's there's more to something than than you thought there was is first you got to know all the fundamental basics so in order to know that there's something interesting or potentially a, a different species within the rhinchospora you got to know that complex if not all of rhinchospora which would probably be near impossible considering how, how many of them are but, but at least within our region or within a group of, of organisms um that familiarity has to come somewhere. So, so like I, I mentioned earlier, these are all experienced people that that uh, that know all the low hanging fruit sort of things and are are keen to seeing things that are that are unusual. Those are I like to like to refer to those those rare species, those overlooked species as being the often the the rare things, the the very delicate fingertips of speciation and ecological complexity. The important things that we need to monitor the the most canary of all the canaries in the coal mine um so i mean it, it's it's unfortunate really that you really have to know a flora really well to understand how it actually works at the at the at the at the intricate levels um, you got to put in a lot of time a lot of hours and these people do it because they they're passionate about it kind of building on what you said about knowing things really well and having to almost know a flora to identify new parts of that flora. Um, many field botanists, I can't really mention where where my new species is from, but Justin, you've been to two of those localities. Mason yeah. included one of those hey, localities. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of which was a very, very difficult locality with a lot of unfamiliar species, so of course you weren't going to notice that one and just, well, not note it. What was the location? Yeah, but I mean, at that site, there's a lot of yeah. very unfamiliar species to you. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, what Claire mentions that I found that uh, the the same the same entity as uh, I guess you can edit this out of bleep it as part of the podcast. We're just talking here. Yeah, found it at <laughs> on the Caney Fork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I first found it there. Um, I was like, well, that's really weird. But then I was like, oh, but you know, it's also on limestone. And so maybe it can, maybe it can grow on limestone. You know, 
not to realize that both of those were the same new entity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I just want I just want to point out that yeah, uh, I had a red flag when I got it. I was like, this is weird. There shouldn't be longleaf pine savannah species on these rock on these limestone rock outcrops mm. in the freaking middle Tennessee. But uh, I was like, oh, but it's a <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It just stands out. Um, and the specimen that Mason collected there at Bleep, uh, <laughs> it accumulated a, several annotation labels by several people who I highly respect as field botanists who identified it and then changed it. I mean, ultimately, I think that specimen was identified as four different species. Something along those lines. Yeah. At least four different people had thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean that right there is an indicator. If many people are disagreeing on a species identification, that that's probably something new. This illustrates a, a, a thing that I never really thought of much, but it dawned on me, so I thought I'd share, is that it ties in with not having enough people out seeing these things, enough people interested, enough people active, uh, observing nature at the scale. Um, when you have one person who's the that knows the flora of a region, it's akin to having one television program to watch on television. It's akin to having one book for everybody to read. Each of us brings a different perspective and we're each gonna see something different. You know, it's a, it's a plurality of perspectives necessary to, to elucidate what is real about nature. And the more of that we have, the closer to the real image of what that dynamic is we're gonna, we're gonna get. So. Um, all the more reason to have more people. Yeah, I just want to mention something along those lines. So for a great example of this is Dr. Dwayne Estes. So, you know, he did his uh, PhD on gradiola, and so he became basically a, a, the local plantage expert. Well, he's, he's the local plantage expert, but he's also like the local expert. And so what he finds is things in Plantagenesi, like he has a new pistamin to science, you know, a new gradiola. He has a couple of new gradiola to science. You know, he's interested in agalinus, but that just goes like too many plants, not enough botanists. So like because Doinesis is a Plantagenesi expert, we're finding new Plantagenesi in Middle Tennessee. But if Dwayne was a Cypressi expert... I mean, I guess he is actually. He did describe that. Okay, okay. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of a uh, poesy. Okay, he's re he's really not a poesy. He's like, yeah, <laughs> because you know, therefore, therefore, we uh, we didn't find the new poesy. But Claire just goes to these sites that Dwayne has been to and finds. I'm not 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 to be hard on Dwayne, but you know, not everybody can be an expert in everything. Yeah. So he's not a dicanthelium guy. Claire goes to these sites, picks up remarkable finds in dicanthelium and you know well what if we had a guy who studied you know limna like what would we find <laughs> you know <laughs> like we don't even know what we're missing because we don't have the right guys yeah i think that all goes back to more taxonomic training um early on just getting more people into taxonomy the more people you get into taxonomy the more people you actually get to yeah. do i guess what you would call hardcore taxonomy yeah. field botany the more stuff is going to start turning up and we and we don't even have experts in at least field experts in mosses, field fungi. Um, geez, I mean, there's there's groups that I'm so unfamiliar with, I can't even think of them. But there are tons of the lichens. You know, you've got you've got yeah, these things become popular awareness, and they get this pulse of of, of awareness, and we all of a sudden realize, wow, the world is much more complex when we turn the lights on. Who, who, like, there's even vascular plants. Like, who, 
who is a local polygonacee expert yeah who like who like knows rumex and polygonum like nobody like and that's diverse and we're and we're talking about groups of things that are rare when they're rare they're going to be geographically uh limited and so you need geographical awareness and geographical knowledge so you, you almost need a a backyard botanist in every community who's aware of these things in order to actually understand them where these things are we were talking earlier at lunch about a, a saracenia pitcher plant that was that was reputed from tennessee right yeah. from one site and that site was now the plant was collected and the collection was accidentally destroyed and so there's a list there's a it was supposedly there but it would have been the only one in that region because it was so rare and now because the specimen's gone we don't even know if it was you know, I think Claire referred to it as a ghost. Is it a ghost? Do we believe in ghosts like this? You know, it, you don't know if it was there. Yeah, you assume by association of the things that were with it that it could have been. But these are things, unfortunately, we need to document before they're all gone. But also, we just need to understand them and help them exist in perpetuity. I think that backyard botany and becoming specialists in our own sort of realms and geographic realms is the height of importance, but also communication among regions. The entity that I had identified, Rob Noxie of the New York Botanical Garden, had also identified it as being new, and he was actively describing it when I started to try to describe it for my own project. And it was only the connection between the two of us that allowed us to collaborate. Especially in difficult genera where, where the taxonomies are already heavily burdened with names. And in today's information age, we ought to be able to share information really well. We yeah, Thomas is, is the last of the line. It's been a long road. To, oh, we're out of time, Thomas. I'm sorry. No, we'll get around to Thomas Murphy. Howdy, howdy. My name is uh, Thomas Murphy. So uh, yeah, I haven't talked until now because I didn't want to be a nameless, nameless voice. Uh, <laughs> But now I have a name. Uh, yeah, so I'm a grad student at Austin P. And uh, like Zach, I study clematis or clematis taxonomy, primarily in the southeastern U.S. And I work on the clematis reticulata species complex. And so um, we're using morphometrics and common garden studies to delimit species. Uh, and I'm interested in several other groups. So I'm here. I'm here to look at clematis, here to look at uh, amorpha and here to look at Tephrosia and four other genera. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my interests. Yeah. Using, using morphometrics and common garden studies and maybe eventually genetics or something like that to, uh, to untangle species relationships. So. Thomas, you and Zach and Dwayne and I may be forgetting others have, have, have taken clematis. I say clematis, but uh, the the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, from at least the reticulata complex from X number of taxa to X number of taxes. That's something you could speak to. Yeah. So there's right now Zach and I are studying two um, related um, uh, artificial complexes. So I, I study the reticulata complex, and Zach studies the Viorna complex, and. Uh, Right now, the reticulated complex is one species, um, and it's based on preliminary data right now, it, it appears to be five five distinct entities, including reticulata 
in a strict sense. So, so four, four previously undescribed taxa. And in Zach's case, in the Viorna complex, how many is it, Zach? It's a, it's a little different than the reticulated complex because um, Clemens Viorna, there's a lot of names synonymized under that. So things like Clemens Bdli, Flasta, and Gatindrime. And so we're working to see if those need to be resurrected. And then there's been a lot of really great botanists and uh, key collaborators that have uh, helped us to increase our understanding and are working on these uh, species with us. So I guess this now goes to should I be talking about secret of things? Uh, <laughs> So, um, in the black belt, we've got Dr. Brian Keener, who's um, discovered a new entity there that we're all working on that's kind of similar to Clemens morphildii. And if you're not familiar with morphildii, that was a threatened species um, that Dr. Robert Crawl named. And uh, it's one of the most striking and distinctive Clemens that is known. And it's known from, you know, just a few sites on the western escarpment of the Cumberland Plateau in Alabama, Tennessee, and now Georgia. And so it's kind of the similar case with a lot of our new species. You know, we may have five or six populations that are known, and hopefully that'll expand. But most of them are, you know, seem to be like narrow endemics. So at the moment, we're probably looking at uh, six species coming out of that one Clemens v. Warnum. It's very complex, and uh, it's taken a long time to wrap our head around the things, but we keep finding more things. Just like when we were here, we keep finding new taxa that could potentially be. Uh, resurrected like I'll let Thomas tell you about our oh okay yeah well well I wasn't going to talk about that but I but I <laughs> yeah but I can't or oh yeah I mean uh, we were really in Clematis Crisp and we found some some curious specimens that uh, it seems to be legitimate based on the the few collections that we've seen here I don't know probably 10 or maybe a dozen dozen specimens you know so yeah but I think you know well, you know, what's interesting about Clematis and with a lot of groups is we're finding patterns um, within these narrow um, geographic areas um, that are becoming known for endemism, like the Watchtown Mountains. Um, uh, where else? We have like the Cumberland Plateau. We have the Coastal Plain, um, uh, West Gulf Coastal Plain, East Gulf Coastal Plain, um, areas like that. So, well, it's gener it's mostly Cumberland Plateau. Yes, it's mostly. It's centered in the Cumberland Plateau. Well, yeah, so I need to, uh, I just realized I only listed one collaborator. There's way more. So I need to mention those people. So there's a botanist, Max Medley, out of North Georgia, who's been instrumental. I'm oh, sorry, he's been instrumental in discovering a lot of these clematis in the uh, Coosa Valley area of Rome, Georgia. Of course, Aaron Floden, that's here at Mobot. He's done a lot of great work in Clematis, and uh, Theo Witzel over in Arkansas has really done a lot of great uh, work in the uh, Ozarks and Washington's with Clematis that we're working on. So, yeah, it's it's there's there's a uh, I think a lot of this illustrates, and I think it's something that's just background thought for for us five is is that when you dive into these when you dive into these groups, you see something that's unusual, something that's that's been missed you 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 start to realize this, you, you start unraveling you start pulling the string of a of a taxonomy and you start realizing there's more and more and more to it um i i like the analogy of of a species 
as you're learning a species complex, it's a it's a haze of of of, of enti an entity that's a haze, and then you start hearing a voice in the haze, and so you walk into the haze and you hear more voices, and all of a sudden there's voices everywhere in the haze. Your job is to elicit what those voices are, if they are anything, or try to try to push the haze into what is categorically understandable into the human brain and, and, and relate it to the world in terms of its importance um, as, as, as an organism. And I, and I think also what's background to a lot of this, and we're not even talking about it, is so background. And we're all sort of doing this because at some scale we appreciate the elaborate and complex wonder that life that life expresses itself in and when we go to appreciate that and spend our time with it we realize it's much more complex than we even thought and when we dig into that we realize it's even more complex than we thought it just becomes deeper and more intricate and more beautiful as you move along that process you see how fragile and destructive uh, the environment or how, how fragile the environment a lot of these things occur in and how destructive we've been across a landscape a lot of a lot of things we'll never know the the historical distributions of because so much of the landscape has been altered so so much um backing up a little bit um one thing i want to point out is, is is that is anybody here as an employee of any is anybody, anybody clocking hours for for this yeah so this that's that's one of the other things about this none of us are here there's five of us here we're all doing this because there's nothing else we'd rather be doing than going to Mobot and looking at plants and graciously these 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 fine folks have, have taken a little time out of that endeavor to to speak to us uh, speak to you all on the on the podcast but you know it, it begs the question why aren't there paid positions of people doing this actively right now I, I spend two weeks a year at, at Mobot out of my own pocket trying to answer these sort of questions and we we should we really should live in a culture where that's where there are actual like claire claire's looking for a job if there's any jobs out there um but there's there's it's hard to find a job out there to do this type of work to to, to bring these sort of things to awareness it's not appreciated because it's there's no monetary value to it yeah you know, there's no way to make to make a buck off it but but it's it's so worth doing that these 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 folks feel compelled to do it and they would be doing it otherwise. And it, and it goes back to the podcast, the first podcast where I talk about one of the goals of nature site is to, is to give the reins to scientists. These are the people that need to be in charge of and, and, and more uh, given, given more opportunity to express them and describe how nature works and, and what it means, what rarity means, what taxonomy means. Anybody want to add to that? Or be happy? Please. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that there are those kinds of jobs are few and far between, and they tend to consider or they tend to require um, some sort of um, advanced degree that takes a long time, and not not everyone has the opportunity to yeah. to go towards that. Um, but there are a lot of gifted people who who don't necessarily have like you know a PhD or a master's who are. <laughs> I mean, I thought uh, Thomas's point was really good, uh, actually, because I think a lot of people, just to have a job sort of doing botany, get PhDs so they can become a professor, you know, because there's no really, there's not that many jobs out there. 
And so you can s still do botany as a professor and teach classes and still be a botanist and, you know, make a decent living. But there's a lot of bachelor's and master's level botanists who just scrape by and are extremely talented. And so it's like, you know, what are you supposed to do? Like you are saying, if there's more of a financial incentive, yeah. you know, how do you create that and how do you sustain that? I think is a really good topic to discuss. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that as well. And, 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 and what people that work in in the field of, of 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 at least you know the world i know botany and, and ecology to an extent um we we often refer to there's there's two sort of camps right there's there's the field folks and there's the lab folks and it's two different totally different personality types both are important both are useful there's a rare occasion where you find a human being that can transcend that that uh that chasm um we need more of those type of people. Um, but in order to have an academic job, which are highly competitive, you need an advanced degree. The process of getting that advanced degree is not always the same process of, of doing field work. So, so like, like Claire's going off of, and, and I'm speaking to Claire because I know her better. Claire's worked with me and I've known Claire f for a long time. Claire's done at least four or five, five field seasons where she's out in the woods collecting data from quadrants on the ground, vegetative data, identifying plants in sterile condition uh, for, for ecological projects and learning about living organisms in the field and realizing that's when you start realizing, hey, wait a minute, we're missing this or that's a different species. Why are we calling this that? Whoa, we've been calling this that? That's completely wrong. Or conversely, that's really good. Well, we've really done this. Well, I like this species. I like that species. Um, the alternative route, I mean, for somebody like Claire, who's, who's learning and gaining a lot of information and knowledge that way, who may not necessarily want to get a PhD, um, because, because to, to, to get a PhD doing botany and ecology sort of stuff, you're competing with people that have massive grants behind them or have done very extensive lab base work, very sexy, very grant friendly sort of things that you're not going to look good necessarily to a university so there's a cultural difference there there's there's the rugged field folks who are relatively introverted and like being in nature but they're observing a lot and you have more lab folks that are that are seeing less or not seeing organisms in the field as much and so aren't as keyed in because a lot of a lot of knowing an organism is knowing where it is and the environment that it's that it's growing in and so Neither one is bad necessarily, but there's a huge deficit on the field end of things and a cultural, uh, a lack of cultural awareness and appreciation for like the, the kind of stuff that, that we all see and the things we do. I know, Justin, it's like two worlds. Um, you know, the field world and the lab world, and you need both. You absolutely need both. I see people every once in a while who have only like lab experience and how are you supposed to know that like you know one biogeographic pattern is something that like exists if you just look at like barium specimens you know you have to go out in the field and be like well i've never seen that thing growing with chinkapin oak before you know like something like that is not going to show up on an herbarium label you know but these these communities but i think a lot of field experience uh a field expertise is out there that just random people have um that isn't at all uh doesn't ever make it into scientific papers or uh, any sort of like formal 
you know, I know guys in Kentucky uh, who are just like crazy good botanists, just inside and out, and have never published a paper, mm-hmm. never never got more than a bachelor's degree, if that. Right. Yeah, you know. So you need you both. So I always, I uh, you know, we're all sitting around here uh, joking about uh, all the the, the herbarium botanists. You know, I, I used to do that too, and then I then I became the, a collections manager for the past five years, and so I, I don't think I can joke about the herbarium. At some point, I better I better stop joking about the herbarium botanists. <laughs> I may have become one. <laughs> I still go outside sometimes, but the hell, I hate the spiders and the bugs, and sometimes it's hot. It it's hot terrible. Why would I? Do? <laughs> it's a, it's a scary world out there. Uh, it's a uh, there's a long history of actual. I mean, a lot of a lot of the I think the botanists that we often uh, consider some of the more astute were often field based people probably easier to go uh, from the to if you're gonna do both it, there's probably only one way you can do it and that's start in the field and then move to the lab i really can't see somebody be, you know starting in the lab and being like oh now that i'm you know in my middle age and i've been looking at microscopes for the past 20 years i'm going to go outside now <laughs> absolutely and, and and the culture is the culture is that universities get money from grants and and are often the science is often linked to the technology. So as the technology advances, if we find new computer programs that can crunch numbers, well, now we need to find things to make biology fit into cr- number crunching instead of the best number cruncher in the world is your own brain and your own eyes. It's just, just seeing patterns um, without having to explicitly make out the patterns. Um, we try to duplicate that, but the, the, the culture of that starts to supplant the culture of being in the field and recognizing things um and so so when we like we we spoke earlier about young people wanting to go into the field the universities by default are set up for lab-based learning of nature to the exemption of anything else really i mean like i said a lot of junior seniors in undergrads in college don't even realize that there's field stuff out there and and it's because the university is set up to is not set up to be field based, and and universities used to have field botany classes. Here's a good example: the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up until a couple of years ago, for their managers of their fish and wildlife uh, reserves, one of the requirements was having botany and like a plant taxonomy class as 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 part of their coursework and their education. They dropped that requirement off of the, the list of requirements to get that job, not because they didn't think it was important, but because nobody had that on their, nobody had that on their resume. Nobody could fulfill it anymore. Um, so that's, that's, that's always a good example of, of that dynamic. Yeah, I was going to say another thing about why um, having good field botanists, you know, is really important too, because a lot of the university-based genetic research relies on the identification done by field botanists to do their genetic work. So when they're working, you know, doing population genetics or phylogenies of really complex groups, you know, that's not really their expertise. It's our expertise. So there's a lot of uh, room for collaboration and coordination of projects. They're relying on someone who's really trained to be able to identify something that's very complex and get the right thing because all their data is based on that. These institutions that exist, of course, are very important. You know, the the the, the society, the norms that we have. But there's also, oh, oh, we we can, and some sometimes we get rare opportunities to try to kind of break out 
and to do our own thing a little bit. So uh, this fall, I got to teach dendrology at Murray State, uh, which was a, f- a f- I've done it before. It's a fun experience. And uh, there's weekly labs. And to me, I'm like, how in God's name are you going to have a quote unquote lab in dendrology? Like what, what laboratory, you know? experiments are we going to do with to learn these trees <laughs> they put the tree in a petri dish and so i was like so you're saying i have like you know four hours every week that i'm supposed to be in the in the quote unquote lab and i was like okay well weekly field trips so uh yeah so i'm like okay well you know i don't think this was part of the class but i took my class on weekly field trips and the reason i did that is because i in order to have like a real intimate understanding of these trees, you have to see the tree in the wild. You have to touch the tree in the wild. You have to smell the tree in the wild. Like then you will know the tree. Like you will not learn the tree from an herbarium specimen. Well, you can, but you not. No, you won't. You won't know it to the to the extent that you'll know it ex- experiencing the tree. And so you know. Um, hopefully, whoever uh, replaced me at Murray State will uh, continue the same tradition. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The, and and that's not an uncommon phenomenon. I know I know at least four. I was sitting there thinking of of who all I know that have done that. I do it myself. I I teach a field botany course through a a, a university, um, and a couple other folks that I know too. And it's done adjunct, right? So you're I mean you're paid peanuts. I don't know about. I'm not going to speak to Masons oh, and an yeah, unexpected. Yeah, yeah. So you're 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 not paid professor or prices for for these these sort of things it's like okay let's let's get these these dregs of people that are doing this on their own and we'll do it for peanuts and and that's not just bot that's not just biology and botany that that happens that's kind of a uni- a problem in universities right now in general is 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 adjuncts uh bringing bringing expertise that the university is selling and not necessarily we need a labor we need a union you know a union of adjuncts to to form um, so backing off this topic, let's let's get back into the meat and potatoes of, of, of species in general. No, it was a good it was a good digression. The the uh, so what is it? What, what makes a, a species when we when we when we try to define? I'm not trying to define a species because I don't think that's really definable. But when we see something that we think might be a species, since we're talking about cryptic and and otherwise new new species, um, and and I'll just throw a my perspective out there and you guys can run with it or not um for, for me I, I look for three i think there's three sort of criteria for for a good species um in the wild is distinction distinctions in three different categories geography is one so a species usually has a defined geographic or can have a defined geographic range uh a habitat an, an ecology a habitat associated with usually Usually with species, usually you don't find a species that occurs in alpine meadows that also occurs in coastal plain marshes, for example. So there's there's a there's a degree of ecological distinction, and then there's also a morphological range that I that I like to see that this this looks different. It has this character that makes this different, um, and those three kind of work together. Usually, some some species are strongly morphologically different. Some are strongly geographically different. Some are stronger ecologically different. But at least usually there's usually there's some element of those three things. Not not always. You can have. It doesn't always have to be. Um, and I'll add 
though it's usually against my, my general philosophy, that there's a molecular element to that too, a genetic element, that we're getting better at, 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 at learning what that means. Um, but usually the go-to, kind of turning back to, to lab-based things, a lot of the go-to now is more, a lot of emphasis is pr- placed on the molecular, the genetic end of things. Probably, I think, and you guys can, can agree or disagree, um, uh, overweighted in terms of ev- value of its evidence. I know, I mean, I feel particularly lucky having gone to Austin P because um, the lab in the field is married so well at that school and in the Center of Excellence for Field Biology there. Like, for example, my friend described a new species of crayfish and she was doing genetics on it, but her advisor very much wanted also morphological characters like yes they're primarily lab people but they are i think i think at least at austin p there's very much an emphasis of um a sort of unified species concept not just leaning on one species concept and i think that's particularly important and marrying not just the morphology in the lab but also the morphology in the ecology like what if your morphology it's different because of different ecological features if it's drier of course the leaves are going to be smaller so I mean can you rely on that as a character and that's where the geography comes in and ultimately that the geography and hopefully um, reproductive isolation would then help your argument and ultimately at the end of the day it is an argument and a hypothesis and using as much evidence as you possibly can is what saves you otherwise you end up with a paper that if you're lucky, it gets refuted immediately, but if you're not, then it just kind of sits there and nobody really thinks to say anything. Sure. Yeah, I pretty much agree with uh, both of you. I like the total evidence approach if it's plausible, but of course my background isn't phylogenetics. It's, you know, field botany and plant ecology, but so yeah, total evidence approach and really just being as most thorough as possible and getting to as many of the sites as you can. And, you know, this, you can't always go to every single site, but in my mind, I would like to think I can. Uh, and not just rely on always, you know, just specimens. Zach, Zach and Thomas, have you, have you guys both done uh, molecular components to the clematis work, or have there been... There's a collaborator. There's a collaborator. Are those, are, do those results jive well with what you see otherwise? in the field yeah we have a collaborator who we're um, pretty close with who we send samples and um, he's using some pretty advanced uh, high throughput methods to um, construct phylogenies of our groups and um, I'd say it's pretty early to tell Um, still a lot of samples are being processed but like preliminary data is looking all right um, in some in some cases and some not but I was gonna say, you know, uh, Clematis is such a complex system that, yeah, at the moment, it's pretty early to tell. I mean, we've been doing our stuff a lot longer than he has, but um, you know, he's still building his phylogeny and he's working, really, doing a phylogeny of all the Clematis or the good sample, a good subset of the Clematis of the world, not all, but you know, he's really trying to provide resolution to not just, you know, like a subgenus. Um, but I don't want to speak too much for him, but, you know, the good thing about this guy is he's got a background, you know, he started out studying field botany, so he knows everything we're dealing with. 
he's not just going to go, okay, this is only the order. You know, he knows because he can morphologically, you know, study and separate things. He's got experience doing a lot of field work. Yeah, the fact that they're even having this conversation is a testament to probably a, a prior mindset that you need before going into this, that there is stuff to discover, that it really is a big world out there, and that there are loose ends, which, you know, we're all here just like in agreement, like like that's just like something we just assume. But that is not an assumption that I feel like a lot of people in, in the... Um, Maybe not so much in taxonomy, but just in the general scientific sphere of conservation and biology in general, understand, you know, um, uh, the idea that uh, in the United States of all places, you can go out to, you know, I don't know, Alabama and walk away with dozens of new species uh, in, over over a couple of decades. I mean, um, you that uh, you the, the mindset that you ha- and this is something that to to uh, Dr. Estes's great great credit helped instill in me um in my early years at Austin P was that it's a it's a big big world out there and we don't know most of it you know there there's a lot left to discover uh and yeah yeah and and to be okay with um loose ends to be okay with uh things that aren't clean and unsatisfying, uh, you know, um, because of course it's messy. The natural world's messy, and it's not gonna, it's not gonna be all, all, uh, sh- all sharp angles, all right angles on us. There's a, there's a philosophical approach to this. There's a philosopher named Polanyi in the, I think, 1950s, but he has <laughs> has a thing that's called Polanyi's paradox, where he basically illustrated that. Just because you can't explain why something is the way it is doesn't mean it isn't the way it is. There are things that are, you know, we've all struggled with. Oh, I'm trying to explain this to somebody, but I'm not quite getting it across. And a great example is is, is driving a car. You could study driving a car. You could read books on learning how to drive a car. You could watch people drive a car. But until you drive a car, you don't really learn what driving a car is. There's an experiential, a, 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 a a, a tacit element to learning and to knowing and to and it's it's, it's experience based and so that's that's why i think i think that's what a lot of us enjoy about field work is we feel like we're really seeing what the world is like and learning that it's that it's more complex than we ever thought um, other than just geeking out on things yeah i think the experience is uh very very important because for me you know, can I study when I saw a really good natural community, you know, which I'd never known about when I first started, and still, that's the most inspiring thing. And I think you could take someone who was developing condos on ridgetops in Chattanooga the day before, and if you could show them a great, you know, habitat and just some education, I think, you know, it could change people's mentalities. But they don't see those because they're so rare. So... Great, great example of that is there's a there's a prairie fit in Michigan that was discovered. Nobody knew it was really there 20 years ago or so now. That was the, a, a, an environmental consultant was brought out to do a wetland delineation of this development that was going in, and they were going to put their stormwater drainage into this wet area, just pipe it into the swampy wet area that's out there. And they sent out an environmental consultant to 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 see where the, to make the lines of the wetlands and see basically to define whether it was a wetland and where the lines were. Luckily, the person they hired to do that had a really good field sense. 
And as soon as they got there, they realized, holy cow, this has more rare plants in this 20 acres than I've seen in the last, in, in 20 counties surrounding it. It was an amazing uh, unknown prairie fen, rich complex. And that person did a really good job of working with the system and with, with other people. And it wound up being purchased by the Nature Conservancy and the stormwater was diverted somewhere else. If somebody who didn't know, if somebody just went in there and thought it was just a wetland and didn't know the plants and the rarity and, the, and, and what to look for, it would have been filled with salt, you know, salt coming off of the highway in the, in the, in the area, it would have gotten sedimentized, it would have dramatically altered that landscape and that piece of ancient, complex, ecological in, intensity and complexity would have just, nobody would have even known it existed. And then you'd run into, like like we were talking earlier, you run across an herbarium specimen from, this place was Pawpaw Prairie, you run across an herbarium specimen 50 years later post-destruction, you're like, wow, and you go there and it's just Phragmites and cattails, and you think, well, I guess it was there, there's nothing here now. It's amazing how quickly those things, how quickly landscapes can change. Say you want to put a new building in and it's in a known agricultural area, or sorry, not agricultural area, a um, an archaeological area. You have to do like sort of a dig to determine what's there and whether you will be impacting that and whether you need to build elsewhere. And you send educated archaeologists who know what they're looking at to determine whether the impacts will be bad. And yeah, I mean, a lot of contract botanists who do wetland delineation they are educated but often they are trained in two weeks yeah they they know like some wetland species of carex but they they're definitely lumping a lot like I think growth form. yeah growth form so genus. yeah so how can we it's like sending you know a guy who took archaeology archaeology 101 in college to an archaeology site where they're about to build something and say hey is there something important here how are they supposed to know if they've only had one college class on that exact subject that's a great point sorry that's a great point because that is very very common and i've heard a lot of stories about how firms now really instead of contracting out they hire someone who's not really a botanist or ecologist but can you know do the bare minimal and that's enough to get them past any kind of, you know, mitigation restraints or anything like that. And so, like you've all been talking about, you know, here's this one community. Well, now it's gone because so-and-so, you know, couldn't tell what was there to a high level that a really trained person could. And oftentimes, too, it's single species that might be determining whether something is worth saving rather than ecological integrity. I mean, how do you train someone to look for ecological integrity? And more importantly, like, ultimately, that's more what matters when it comes to these mitigation sites. I do I do workshops throughout the Midwest, Mid-South, doing plant identification workshops. And often in urban areas, Kansas City, St. Louis, Indianapolis, the main ones. Um, and... When I start talking about a species or we're training, we're teaching people plants, so I have a plant, I'm like, this plant is a such and such. Often when they're, when they're rarer plants or less common plants or, or plants that are indicative of really complex, intact ecologies, um, I start talking about the habitat that these occur. These occur in ancient old growth prairie or fen or woodland systems. Um, 
when I start describing those those systems and what they look like, people don't know what I'm talking about because people haven't been in them. Most people don't know what a really nice prairie is. Even fewer know what a good fin is, which which leads to the the next point, maybe the last point that I wanted to make, and and we'll we'll try to wrap this up. That the uh, we've been talking a lot about taxonomy and kind of an ecological context, but I, I think really good field taxonomy people, but also really good ecologists in the sense that they've seen, I find that there's a strong correlation between people that know organisms, not necessarily plants, that really know organisms and also understand ecologies. I don't know a, many good ecologists that don't, aren't also really good at a, at a group of organisms. Um, James Traeger at, at Shaw Nature Reserve knows ants, he also knows plants. and. I, and I think that dynamic is that, that, that people that, that get into an organism whether or a group of organisms like plants or ants, they start learning those things. They learn all the easy ones in their backyard first and the, they start making a, ever bigger circles trying to find more and more information on the organism they're looking at. And eventually they realize that the really cool ones, the really interesting ones are really rare. And then they start realizing those are in really unique habitats. And so you, you start making this strong correlation between organisms and, and communities and ecologies that I think a lot of people don't appreciate the depth of which that is a an integral part of the whole system so it's one of the it's one of the nice benefits or one of the beauties of being more field-based organismal biologist is you also by default or maybe even by design are, are better a better you have a better concept of how ecological systems work in general. Everybody's nodding their head. Yeah, it's kind of wild that you could even expect somebody to understand how uh, multiple species all, uh, interact without understanding what the species are. I mean, ecology isn't ecology just a fancy word for like more than one species? I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, right? Why are we even putting these in separate boxes here? Yeah, well, why is it when I study one species, I'm a taxonomist? If I study two species, I'm an ecologist. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. The, the the phenomenon is is the organisms in in concert. You kind of got to know the organisms. Yeah, Zach's talking about dispersal mechanisms. All of, all of a sudden, you start realizing, okay, these are the functional, the physical functional elements of, of these systems and how these systems work, how they disperse. And that's one of the beauties of, of getting to know organisms, especially plants, because they, they are sedentary and easy to catch, is more, more so than animals, is that you start seeing patterns, right? A lot of times, like I mentioned, species distinctions like geography and habitat, it's a big one for us because the Austin piece of kind of west Tennessee, west central Tennessee, but they're close to the National Basin and Cumberland Plateau. They have a lot of uh, limestone, glady, outcroppy, scour communities. But then also in the Ozarks and the Wachita's, there's also limestony, rocky outcrops. And so there's a lot of floristic uh, commonality in a lot of the species we study. So you start learning about geographies and you start, when you start piecing together the geographies and you start seeing the species, and then you start talking about evolution. People say nothing in biology makes sense, but through the lens of evolution, I'd say nothing in the world of ecology or taxonomy makes sense, but through the lens of, of evolution as well. That that's, you learn one through the other. I couldn't imagine studying evolution and not understanding phytogeographical trends and shifts across a landscape. 
and, and by knowing plants, especially the finer, you know, these, these cryptic things we're talking about are often probably relatively newly evolved things or, or, or sister species that rapidly radiated. I look at dicanthelium a lot. Carex is a good example. These really big genera. Blackberries, the genus Rubus, these are, these are things that are notorious to have been rapid and relatively recent radiations. Um, so with that, we will say goodbye to our, our friends for the day and thank them for uh, dedicating this hour of their visit to the, to the garden and wish them well and finding all kinds of wonderful characters for new species that we can all enjoy and later and here later on down the road. Uh, so thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you.